0: Chapter 6 of Random Reminiscences of Men and Events by John D. Rockefeller This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Random Reminiscences of Men and Events by John D. Rockefeller. Chapter 6 the Difficult Art of Giving It is, no doubt, easy to write platitudes and generalities about the joys of giving, and the duty that one owes to one's fellow men, and to put together again all the familiar phrases that have served for generations whenever the subject has been taken up. I can hardly hope to succeed in starting any new interest in this great subject when gifted writers have so often failed. Yet, I confess, I find much more interest in it at this time than in rambling on, as I have been doing, about the affairs of business and trade. It is most difficult, however, to dwell upon a very practical and business-like side of benefactions generally, without seeming to ignore, or at least to fail to appreciate fully, the spirit of giving which has its source in the heart, and which, of course, makes it all worthwhile in this country we have come to the period when we can well afford to ask the ablest men to devote more of their time thought and money to the public well-being i am not so presumptuous as to attempt to define exactly what this betterment work should consist of every man will do that for himself and his own conclusion will be final for himself it is well i think that no narrow or preconceived plan should be set down as the best I am sure it is a mistake to assume that the possession of money, in great abundance, necessarily brings happiness. The very rich are just like all the rest of us, and, if they get pleasure from the possession of money, it comes from their ability to do things which give satisfaction to someone besides themselves. Limitations of the Rich The mere expenditure of money for things, so I am told by those who profess to know, soon palls upon one the novelty of being able to purchase anything one wants soon passes because what people most seek cannot be bought with money these rich men we read about in the newspapers cannot get personal returns beyond a well-defined limit for their expenditure they cannot gratify the pleasures of the palate beyond very moderate bounds since they cannot purchase a good digestion they cannot lavish very much money on fine raiment for themselves or their families without suffering from public ridicule, and in their homes they cannot go much beyond the comforts of the less wealthy without involving them in more pain than pleasure. As I study wealthy men, I can see but one way in which they can secure a real equivalent for money spent, and that is to cultivate a taste for giving where the money may produce an effect which will be a lasting gratification. A man of business may often most properly consider that he does his share in building up a property which gives steady work for few or many people, and his contribution consists in giving to his employees good working conditions, new opportunities, and a strong stimulus to good work. Just so long as he has the welfare of his employees in his mind and follows his convictions, no one can help honoring such a man. It would be the narrowest sort of view to take, and I think the meanest to consider that good works consist chiefly in the outright giving of money. THE BEST PHILANTHROPY The best philanthropy, the help that does the most good and the least harm, the help that nourishes civilization at its very root, that most widely disseminates health, righteousness, and happiness, is not what is usually called charity it is in my judgment the investment of effort or time or money carefully considered with relation to the power of employing people at a remunerative wage to expand and develop the resources at hand and to give opportunity for progress and healthful labor where it did not exist before no mere money-giving is comparable to this in its lasting and beneficial results if as I am accustomed to think, this statement is a correct one, how vast indeed is the philanthropic field. It may be urged that the daily vocation of life is one thing, and the work of philanthropy quite another. I have no sympathy with this notion. The man who plans to do all his giving on Sunday is a poor prop for the institutions of the country. The excuse for referring so often to the busy man of affairs is that his help is most needed i know of men who have followed out this large plan of developing work not as a temporary matter but as a permanent principle these men have taken up doubtful enterprises and carried them through to success often at great risk and in the face of great scepticism not as a matter only of professional profit but in the larger spirit of general uplift disinterested service the road to success if I were to give advice to a young man starting out in life, I should say this to him. If you aim for a large, broad-gauged success, do not begin your business career, whether you sell your labor or are an independent producer, with the idea of getting from the world by hook or crook all you can. In the choice of your profession or your business employment, let your first thought be, where can I fit in so that I may be most effective in the work of the world? where can i lend a hand in a way most effectively to advance the general interests enter life in such a spirit choose your vocation in that way and you have taken the first step on the highest road to a large success Investigation will show that the great fortunes which have been made in this country, and the same is probably true of other lands, have come to men who have performed great and far-reaching economic services, men who, with great faith in the future of their country, have done most for the development of its resources. The man will be most successful who confers the greatest service on the world. Commercial enterprises that are needed by the public will pay commercial enterprises that are not needed fail and ought to fail on the other hand the one thing which such a business philosopher would be most careful to avoid in his investments of time and effort or money is the unnecessary duplication of existing industries he would regard all money spent in increasing needless competition as wasted and worse the man who puts up a second factory when the factory in existence will supply the public demand adequately and cheaply is wasting the national wealth and destroying the national prosperity, taking the bread from the laborer, and unnecessarily introducing heartache and misery into the world. Probably the greatest single obstacle to the progress and happiness of the American people lies in the willingness of so many men to invest their time and money in multiplying competitive industries instead of opening up new fields, and putting their money into lines of industry and development that are needed. It requires a better type of mind to seek out and to support or to create the new than to follow the worn paths of accepted success but here is the great chance in our still rapidly developing country the penalty of a selfish attempt to make the world confer a living without contributing to the progress or happiness of mankind is generally a failure to the individual the pity is that when he goes down he inflicts heartache and misery also on others who are in no way responsible the generosity of service probably the most generous people in the world are the very poor who assume each other's burdens in the crises which come so often to the hard pressed the mother in the tenement falls ill and the neighbour in the next room assumes her burdens the father loses his work and neighbours supply food to his children from their own scanty store how often one hears of cases where the orphans are taken over and brought up by the poor friend whose benefaction means great additional hardship this sort of genuine service makes the most princely gift from superabundance look insignificant indeed the jews have had for centuries a precept that one-tenth of a man's possessions must be devoted to good works but even this measure of giving is but a rough yardstick to go by to give a tenth of one's income is well-nigh an impossibility to some while to others it means a miserable pittance if the spirit is there the matter of proportion is soon lost sight of it is only the spirit of giving that counts and the very poor give without any self-consciousness but i fear that i am dealing with generalities again the education of children in my early days may have been straight-laced yet i have always been thankful that the custom was quite general to teach young people to give systematically of money that they themselves had earned it is a good thing to lead children to realize early the importance of their obligations to others, but, I confess, it is increasingly difficult, for what were luxuries then have become commonplaces now. It should be a greater pleasure and satisfaction to give money for a good cause than to earn it, and I have always indulged the hope that during my life I should be able to help establish efficiency in giving so that wealth may be of greater use to the present and future generations perhaps just here lies a difference between the gifts of money and of service the poor meet promptly the misfortunes which confront the home circle and household of the neighbour the giver of money if his contribution is to be valuable must add service in the way of study and he must help to attack and improve underlying conditions not being so pressed by the racking necessities it is he that should be better able to attack the subject from a more specific standpoint but the final analysis is the same. His money is a feeble offering without the study behind it which will make its expenditure effective. Great hospitals, conducted by noble and unselfish men and women, are doing wonderful work, but no less important are the achievements in research that reveal hitherto unknown facts about diseases and provide the remedies by which many of them can be relieved or even stamped out to help the sick and distressed appeals to the kind-hearted always but to help the investigator who is striving successfully to attack the causes which bring about sickness and distress does not so strongly attract the giver of money the first appeals to the sentiments overpoweringly but the second has the head to deal with yet i am sure we are making wonderful advances in this field of scientific giving all over the world, the need of dealing with the questions of philanthropy with something beyond the impulses of emotion is evident, and everywhere help is being given to those heroic men and women who are devoting themselves to the practical and essentially scientific tasks. It is a good and inspiring thing to recall occasionally the heroism, for example, of the men who risked and sacrificed their lives to discover the facts about yellow fever, a sacrifice for which untold generations will bless them and this same spirit has animated the professions of medicine and surgery scientific research how far may the spirit of sacrifice properly extend a great number of scientific men every year give up everything to arrive at some helpful contribution to the sum of human knowledge and I have sometimes thought that good people who lightly and freely criticize their actions scarcely realize just what such criticism means. It is one thing to stand on the comfortable ground of placid inaction and put forth words of cynical wisdom, and another to plunge into the work itself, and through strenuous experience earn the right to express strong conclusions for my own part i have stood so much as a placid onlooker that i have not had the hardihood even to suggest how people so much more experienced and wise in those things than i should work out the details even of those plans with which i have had the honour to be associated there has been a good deal of criticism no doubt sincere of experiments on living dumb animals and the person who stands for the defenceless animal has such an overwhelming appeal to the emotions that it is perhaps useless to allude to the other side of the controversy dr simon flexner of the institute for medical research has had to face exaggerated and even sensational reports which have no basis of truth whatever but consider for a moment what has been accomplished recently under the direction of dr flexner in discovering a remedy for epidemic cerebrospinal meningitis it is true that in discovering this cure the lives of perhaps fifteen animals were sacrificed as i learn most of them monkeys but for each one of these animals which lost its life already scores of human lives have been saved Large-hearted men like Dr. Flexner and his associates do not permit unnecessary pain to defenseless animals. I have been deeply interested in the story of a desperate experiment to save a child's life, told in a letter written by one of my associates soon after the event described, and it seems worthy of repeating. Dr. Alexis Carroll has been associated with Dr. Flexner and his work, and his wonderful skill has been the result of his experiments and experiences a wonderful surgical operation. Dr. Alexis Carroll, one of the Institute's staff, has been making some interesting studies in experimental surgery, and has successfully transplanted organs from one animal to another, and blood vessels from one species to another. He had the opportunity recently of applying the skill thus acquired to the saving of a human life under circumstances which attracted great interest among the medical fraternity of this city one of the best known of the younger surgeons in new york had a child born early last march which developed a disease in which the blood for some reason exudes from the blood vessels into the tissues of the body and ordinarily the child dies of this internal hemorrhage when this child was five days old it was evident that it was dying the father and his brother who is one of the most distinguished men in the profession and one or two other doctors were in consultation with reference to it but considered the case entirely hopeless it so happened that the father had been impressed with the work which dr carroll had been doing at the institute and had spent several days with him studying his methods he became convinced that the only possibility of saving the child's life was by the direct transfusion of blood while this has been done between adults, the blood vessels of a young infant are so delicate that it seemed impossible that the operation could be successfully carried on. It is necessary not only that the blood vessels of the two persons should be united together, but it must be done in such a way that the interior lining of the vessels, which is a smooth, shiny tissue, should be continuous. If the blood comes in contact with the muscular coat of the blood vessels, it will clot and stop the circulation fortunately dr carroll had been experimenting on the blood vessels of some very young animals and the father was convinced that if any man in the country could perform the operation successfully it would be he it was then the middle of the night but dr carroll was called on and when the situation was explained to him and it was made clear that the child would die anyhow he readily consented to attempt the operation although expressing very slight hope of its successful outcome the father offered himself as the person whose blood should be furnished to the child it was impossible to give anaesthetics to either of them in a child of that age there is only one vein large enough to be used and that is in the back of the leg and deep-seated a prominent surgeon who was present exposed this vein he said afterward that there was no sign of life in the child and expressed the belief that the child had been to all intents and purposes dead for ten minutes in view of its condition he raised the question whether it was worth while to proceed further with the attempt the father however insisted upon going on and the surgeon then exposed the radial artery in the surgeon's wrist and was obliged to dissect it back about six inches in order to pull it out far enough to make the connection with the child's vein this part of the work the surgeon who did it afterward described as the blacksmith part of the job he said that the child's vein was about the size of a match and the consistency of wet cigarette paper and it seemed utterly impossible for anyone to successfully unite these two vessels dr carroll however accomplished this feat and then occurred what the doctors who were present described as one of the most dramatic incidents in the history of surgery the blood from the father's artery was released and began to flow into the child's body amounting to about a pint the first sign of life was a little pink tinge at the top of one of the ears then the lips which had become perfectly blue began to change to red and then suddenly as though the child had been taken from a hot mustard bath a pink glow broke out all over its body and it began to cry lustily after about eight minutes the two were separated the child at that time was crying for food it was fed and from that moment began to eat and sleep regularly and made a complete recovery the father appeared before a legislative committee at albany in opposition to certain bills which were pending at the last session to restrict animal experimentation, and told this incident, and said at the close that when he saw Dr. Carroll's experiments he had no idea that they would so soon be available for saving human life, much less did he imagined that the life to be saved would be that of his own child. The Fundamental Things in All Help if the people can be educated to help themselves we strike at the root of many of the evils of the world this is the fundamental thing and it is worth saying even if it has been said so often that its truth is lost sight of in its constant repetition the only thing which is of lasting benefit to a man is that which he does for himself money which comes to him without effort on his part is seldom a benefit and often a curse this is the principal objection to speculation it is not because more lose than gain though that is true but it is because those who gain are apt to receive more injury from their success than they would have received from failure and so with regard to money or other things which are given by one person to another it is only in the exceptional case that the receiver is really benefited but if we can help people to help themselves then there is a permanent blessing conferred Men who are studying the problem of disease tell us that it is becoming more and more evident that the forces which conquer sickness are within the body itself, and that it is only when these are reduced below the normal that disease can get a foothold. The way to ward off disease, therefore, is to tone up the body generally, and, when disease has secured a foothold, the way to combat it is to help these natural resisting agencies which are in the body already. In the same way, the failures which a man makes in his life are due almost always to some defect in his personality, some weakness of body, or mind, or character, will, or temperament. The only way to overcome these failings is to build up his personality from within, so that he, by virtue of what is within him, may overcome the weakness which was the cause of the failure. It is only those efforts the man himself puts forth that can really help him we all desire to see the widest possible distribution of the blessings of life many crude plans have been suggested some of which utterly ignore the essential facts of human nature and if carried out would perhaps drag our whole civilization down into hopeless misery it is my belief that the principal cause for the economic differences between people is their difference in personality, and that it is only as we can assist in the wider distribution of those qualities which go to make up a strong personality that we can assist in the wider distribution of wealth. Under normal conditions, the man who is strong in body, in mind, in character, and in will need never suffer want but these qualities can never be developed in a man unless by his own efforts and the most that any other can do for him is as i have said to help him to help himself we must always remember that there is not enough money for the work of the human uplift and that there never can be how vitally important it is therefore that the expenditure should go as far as possible and be used with the greatest intelligence I have been frank to say that I believe in the spirit of combination and cooperation when properly and fairly conducted in the world of commercial affairs, on the principle that it helps to reduce waste, and waste is a dissipation of power. I sincerely hope and thoroughly believe that the same principle will eventually prevail in the art of giving as it does in business. It is not merely the tendency of the times developed by more exacting conditions in industry, but it should make its most effective appeal to the hearts of the people who are striving to do the most good to the largest number. Some Underlying Principles at the risk of making this chapter very dull, and I am told that this is a fault which inexperienced authors should avoid at all hazards, I may perhaps be pardoned if I set down here some of the fundamental principles which have been at the bottom of all my own plans. I have undertaken no work of any importance for many years, which, in a general way, has not followed out these broad lines, and I believe no really constructive effort can be made in philanthropic work without such a well-defined and consecutive purpose my own conversion to the feeling that an organized plan was an absolute necessity came about in this way. About the year 1890 I was still following the haphazard fashion of giving here and there as appeals presented themselves. I investigated as I could and worked myself almost to a nervous breakdown and groping my way without sufficient guide or chart through this ever-widening field of philanthropic endeavor. There was then forced upon me the necessity to organize and plan this department of our daily tasks on as distinct lines of progress as we did our business affairs, and I will try to describe the underlying principles we arrived at, and have since followed out and hope still greatly to extend. It may be beyond the pale of good taste to speak at all of such a personal subject, I am not unmindful of this, but I can make these observations with at least a little better grace because so much of the hard work and hard thinking are done by my family and associates who devote their lives to it. Every right-minded man has a philosophy of life, whether he knows it or not. Hidden away in his mind are certain governing principles, whether he formulates them in words or not, which govern his life. Surely, his ideal ought to be to contribute all that he can however little it may be, whether of money or service to human progress. Certainly, one's ideal should be to use one's means, both in one's investments and in benefactions, for the advancement of civilization. But the question as to what civilization is and what are the great laws which govern its advance have been seriously studied. Our investments not less than gifts have been directed to such ends as we have thought would tend to produce these results. If you were to go into our office and ask our committee, on benevolence, or our committee on investment, and what they consider civilization to consist, they would say that they have found in their study that the most convenient analysis of the elements which go to make up civilization runs about as follows. First, progress in the means of subsistence, that is to say, progress in abundance and variety of food supply, clothing, shelter, sanitation, public health commerce, manufacture, the growth of the public wealth, etc. Second, progress in government and law, that is to say in the enactment of laws securing justice and equity to every man, consistent with the largest individual liberty, and the due and orderly enforcement of the same upon all. Third, progress in literature and language. Fourth, progress in science and philosophy fifth progress in art and refinement sixth progress in morality and religion if you were to ask them as indeed they are very often asked which of these they regard as fundamental they would reply that they would not attempt to answer that the question is purely an academic one that all these go hand in hand but that historically the first of them namely progress in means of subsistence had generally preceded progress in government in literature, in knowledge, in refinement, and in religion. Though not itself of the highest importance, it is the foundation upon which the whole superstructure of civilization is built, and without which it could not exist. Accordingly, we have sought, so far as we could, to make investments in such a way as will tend to multiply, to cheapen, and to diffuse as universally as possible the comforts of life. We claim no credit for preferring these lines of investment we make no sacrifices. These are the lines of largest and surest return. In this particular, namely in cheapness, ease of acquirement, and universality of means of subsistence, our country easily surpasses that of any other in the world, though we are behind other countries, perhaps in most of the others. It may be asked, how is it consistent with the universal diffusion of these blessings that vast sums of money should be in single hands? The reply is, as I see it, that, while men of wealth control great sums of money, they do not and cannot use them for themselves. They have, indeed, the legal title to large properties, and they do control the investment of them, but this is as far as their own relation to them extends or can extend. The money is universally diffused, in the sense that it is kept invested, and it passes into the pay envelope week by week up to the present time no scheme has yet presented itself which seems to afford a better method of handling capital than that of individual ownership we might put our money into the treasury of the nation and of the various states but we do not find any promise in the national or state legislatures viewed from the experiences of the past that the funds would be expended for the general wheel more effectively than under the present methods nor do we find in any of the schemes of socialism, a promise that wealth would be more wisely administered for the general good. It is the duty of men of means to maintain the title to their property, and to administer their funds until some man, or body of men, shall rise up capable of administering for the general good the capital of the country better than they can. The next four elements of progress mentioned in the enumeration above, namely, progress in government and law, in language and literature, in science and philosophy, in art and refinement, we for ourselves have thought to be best promoted by means of the higher education, and accordingly we have had the great satisfaction of putting such sums as we could into various forms of education in our own and in foreign lands, and education not merely along the lines of disseminating more generally the known, but quite as much, and perhaps even more, in promoting original investigation an individual institution of learning can have only a narrow sphere it can reach only a limited number of people but every new fact discovered every widening of the boundaries of human knowledge by research becomes universally known to all institutions of learning and becomes a benefaction at once to the whole race quite as interesting as any phase of the work have been the new lines entered upon by our committee we have not been satisfied with giving to causes which have appealed to us. We have felt that the mere fact that this or the other cause makes its appeal is no reason why we should give to it any more than to a thousand other causes, perhaps more worthy, which do not happen to have come under our eye. The mere fact of a personal appeal creates no claim which did not exist before, and no preference over other causes more worthy which may not have made their appeal so this little committee of ours has not been content to let the benevolences drift into the channels of mere convenience to give to the institutions which have sought aid and to neglect others this department has studied the field of human progress and sought to contribute to each of those elements which we believe tend most to promote it where it has not found organization ready to its hand for such purpose the members of the committee have sought to create them we are still working on new and i hope expanding lines which make large demands on one's intelligence and study the so-called betterment work which has always been to me a source of great interest had a great influence on my life and i refer to it here because i wish to urge in this connection the great importance of a father's keeping in close touch with his children taking into his confidence the girls as well as the boys who in this way learn by seeing and doing and have their part in the family responsibilities as my father taught me so i have tried to teach my children for years it was our custom to read at the table the letters we received affecting the various benevolences with which we had to do studying the requests made for worthy purposes and following the history and reports of institutions and philanthropic cases in which we were interested End of chapter six recording by william tomco